0: I'm often asked by people when they find out I'm new here, they ask me, how do I like Alaska? And I tell them, I, I really do like it here. Um, one of the things I love about Alaska is that I can walk out my front door and take a photograph that you could make a postcard out of. I could I could look to the east and do that. I could look to the west. It really doesn't matter. Pretty much anywhere I look in Alaska, it's beautiful. It's, it's gorgeous here in Alaska. And... Um, and that is a very pleasant thing. There's, there's, other, there's other things I like about Alaska, but that's just something that reminds me on a daily basis that I like it here. The, the problem is that there's so much beauty all around us, only lasts until I look at the newspaper. <laughs> the problem with the newspaper, well, I mean, there's, there's a couple of problems with the newspaper. Sometimes there's things like this. Okay, this is in today's Alaska Dispatch. Alaska cod pot fishermen earn extra flexibility with new octopus quota. OK, I guess that makes sense to people who who are in the business, but if you're coming from the lower 48 to hear about the octopus quota, it's like, okay, all right, so so there's a little bit of struggle just to kind of understand what's going on, and um, we won't talk about the weather page. <laughs> the The problem. With the newspaper in Alaska, the thing that keeps it from fitting in with the beauty that we see all around us is the front page. The front page of Alaska has things like this soldier who lost four limbs back in Michigan hometown or study. Forty four percent of Kodiak women abused or man from Russia charged with faking wrecks to get insurance money. When I pick up the newspaper here in Alaska, I find exactly what I found elsewhere. It's an ugly world. Despite all the beauty I see, the world is ugly. I read about baristas being kidnapped and murdered. I read about burglaries and heroin addicts who are shooting at cops from a motel room. I read about a world where the bodies of women are found in church parking lots. And that's the dichotomy. That's the thing I struggle with here in Alaska as elsewhere. There's beauty in the world and there's still so much ugliness. We're in the middle of a series of conversations called declarations. The idea is that the church has things to say to the world, that there's things that we believe, and we are declaring them to the world. This is what our faith tells us. We began a couple of weeks ago talking about truth. The idea there is that there are things that the church claims to know about the world. And, and you may or may not agree, but this is what we believe, that we know some things about the world, and in particular, we know about the God who created the world, even though we have been cut off from God, we've been disconnected from God by, by our sin. So we talked about truth, truth, but we also talked about grace, that we're not simply cut off by, by um, our uh, sin, but that God loves us anyhow, that no matter what our circumstances tell us, no matter what we see on the front page of the paper, uh, no matter what people have told us, no matter what we're telling ourselves, God doesn't hate us. God loves us. And last week we talked about the cross, which is how we know. And we saw that there's all kinds of of ways the scriptures try and illustrate the truth that Jesus, by dying on the cross and rising from the grave, Jesus reconnected us to our Heavenly Father. So that's kind of how we got here. But it doesn't address the problem of the ugliness. We can say to ourselves, uh, and we might put more flowers on this, depending on how how timid we are. But we're gonna it's eventually come down to something that that, that that boils down to this. We're gonna say, okay, so God loves me. He sure has a funny way of showing it. Let me let me give an example, okay? Um, and you can fill in the gaps for yourself. When I was in college, um, I, I left my record collection in my dorm room, which was stupid, and I learned it was stupid because when I came back, half of it was gone. And what really frustrated me was not that just they'd stolen my records. What really frustrated me is they had stolen half my records. They had insulted my musical taste. It's like, oh, yuck, journey, sticks, Kansas. What are you doing listening to this 70s AOR junk? So they left the stuff they didn't like and they kept, they took away the stuff that they wanted. I was not only injured, I was insulted but but that's I you know thirty years ago I can laugh about that when I was in seminary i i one of the first occasions I had one of the first times the um, the pastor of my field education church kind of let me off the the leash a little bit was on the Sunday after Christmas Eve It was actually Christmas morning was a Sunday and um uh, I guess uh the the pastor figured that I was kind of safe because who would come right they were here last night they were here for for Christmas Eve and now they're opening presents or they're traveling to family or whatever so it's kind of he can't do much damage today so so she, she had me um lead the prayers to the people just like I did right now and so that morning I went online and was reading what all the news was so that if people had concerns I'd know what they were talking about and could could be in prayer for them and that was the morning we learned about the tsunami in um, the Indian Ocean in 2005, the Christmas Day tsunami that devastated coastlines of seven or eight countries and wiped whole villages out to sea. A uh, hundred thousand, maybe maybe a million people um, were were killed in that in that disaster. And I was thinking to myself, how could God let this happen on Christmas? You know, I I have got a little box and I kind of push disasters into them because I don't understand disaster anyway. But, But how could God allow such a terrible thing to happen on Christmas Day? A couple of years later when I was a pastor in California, I was in a hospital room and I was praying with a man who was dying. He had honestly as about as good of a death as most of us can hope for. He he, was, he had lived to a ripe age. He was surrounded by family. Uh, he had had a brief illness. His his um, uh, when it became clear that he was not going to recover, his pain was managed. Everything you might ask for was being given to this man, but he was still dying. And as I was in the hospital praying with him, I was just overcome with the futility, the, the sheer terribleness of death, that we can manage it and we can treat it and we can we can provide care and we can do everything possible, but people still die. Now, I don't know all of your stories, but my guess is that you can relate to this in one way or another. Maybe, in in your case, it's the big things, the the tsunamis, the disasters, and you just struggle. Why is there such evil in a world that shows so much good? Why, Why is there disaster and famine? But maybe you can relate on a more personal level. I mean, really, I relate to all three of those because they affected me. How can I pray for something terrible? That was the situation that I was faced with. So they became personal issues for me. And maybe you can relate to them in a personal way too. You you know someone, or maybe you yourself were touched by violence at some point in your life. Uh, Maybe you've struggled with um, an illness of some kind. And you say, how could God let this happen? Why is there so much ugliness in a world that is so beautiful? This is the question we wrestle with. So we ask ourselves in one way or another, we say, God, what's your problem? Why aren't you doing your job? This is what we're asking one way or another. If we're we're timid, we may put more flowers on it. But one way or another, we say, God, how come? How long, O Lord? The psalmist asks, why won't you come down here and fix things? Why do we have to endure a world that is so messed up? If you've ever wrestled with that question, you have great company. The psalmist, but also the people that Jesus talked to on a daily basis. They asked him the very same question. And we are going to look at a story that Jesus told to answer that question. Because Jesus said, they asked him, is God ever going to do anything about this? And Jesus said, yes, God is going to set the world to right. But no, he's not going to do it today. So let's look at this story. It's it's a parable. If it sounded similar to another parable you've heard before, and you say I don't remember that part about slaughtering people, um, that's a different parable. It's in Matthew's gospel, the one without the slaughtering. But I wanted to read the one with the slaughtering because it it has bearing on today's message. So Jesus is um, uh, talking to them people, and it says as they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They said, Lord, we've got all kinds of problems. Now, their problems were different, but they had problems. They had they had hunger, they had poverty, they had oppression from a foreign government, and they had the same ultimate question that we do, which is, when is God going to come down here and fix things? When is the kingdom of God going to be revealed? And Jesus said to them, A nobleman went to a distant country to get royal power for himself and then return. He summoned ten of his slaves and gave them ten pounds and said to them, Do business with these until I come back. Now, what Jesus is doing is he's speaking in parables. And what a parable is, is a way of talking about the unfamiliar in terms of the familiar. So Jesus tells them a story about a king who goes to a foreign country to get power. Now, we know from history that actually happened. In that part of the world, the King Herod, the one you read about in the Christmas story, King Herod who slaughtered the babies, um, King Herod went to Rome. He was not actually a Jew. He was an Idumean. He was from today's, today we would say Jordan. He was from a country on the far side of the Jordan River. He came to Judea, married into the royal family there, and then kind of eliminated one uh, adversary after another until he thought he was strong enough. He could go ask Rome, is it okay if I'm king here? So he went off to Rome and he said, you know, I want to be king. And while he was there, the exact same thing happened. A bunch of Jews said, we don't want that guy. So they sent a delegation to Rome and they said, please, anybody else, anybody but Herod, he's a terrible guy. So Jesus is telling them something that they don't understand about the kingdom of God and when it's going to arrive in terms of something that they do understand. They understand that, that kings get their power from somewhere and they have, they have uh, hoops they have to jump through and I don't understand how all that stuff works. I, you know, the average person in Judea, how, what would they know about the court of Caesar, right? But he's saying he had to go off and he had to go do something before he could come back. And... He says there were some people who said, we don't want him. And if we know, if we read about the history of Herod, we understand why they wouldn't want him. But that's not Jesus' point. Jesus focuses instead on three slaves, three of ten. He says he, he summons a bunch of slaves and gives each one of them ten pounds. He says, I do business with these until I come back. And when he returned, having received royal power, he ordered these slaves to whom he had given the money, to be summoned so that he might find out what they'd gained by trading. The first came forward, said, Lord, your pound has made ten more pounds. And he said to him, well done, good slave. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small thing, take charge of ten cities. And then the second one comes, he wasn't as, as good at doing business as the first. Um, he, he only managed to turn one pound into five. And he says, Lord, your pound has made five pounds. And the, the king says to him, uh, and you rule over five cities. So they each get a reward uh, proportionate to the to the success they'd had trading with the king's pound. And then a third comes and says, Lord, here's your pound. Here, take it back. I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth, for I was afraid of you, because you're a harsh man. You take what you didn't deposit, and you reap what you didn't sow. And the king says, I don't buy it. He says, I don't believe you. Let's look at what you just told me. You said I'm harsh? Then you should have been desperate to figure out some way to keep me happy. You should have at least put the pound on deposit with the bankers. Then I would have at least got an interest. He says, I don't buy it. He, says, take, he said to the bystanders, take the pound from him and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. And they said, Lord, he's already got 10 pounds. And he said, I tell you, To all those who have, more will be given. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. Now that sounds a little harsh. Um, It's actually not harsh for Herod. Uh, That's very much what we would expect from Herod. But Jesus isn't focusing on them. The point that Jesus is making by talking about the people who reject the king is that They suffer the consequences. So Jesus is saying, uh, the the whole question is, is the the kingdom of God going to appear immediately? You're going to Jerusalem. I assume, Jesus, when you get there, you're going to put a crown in your head, you're going to kick out the Romans, and you're going to sort everything out. The world will be set to right. All the ugliness that we know and endure will be straightened out. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to do that, but it's not going to happen today. Some other things are going to happen first. So that's the, that's the story Jesus is telling, but he does it with this parable about Herod and so forth, the, the king who did this thing and came back. So the, the, the focus here in this story is not on the obedient servants, right? They get a sentence of peace. Okay, and the focus is not even on the people who reject him. The focus isn't on them. He says, sure, they get, they get slaughtered. Okay, which sounds kind of harsh, but remember, the, the parable here Is what happens to those who reject the kingdom of God? Those who would actually say, we like it without God running things. Okay? So if you've ever asked yourself, why doesn't God fix things? Ask yourself, who would ask for God not to? Okay? What is it that we're facing in terms of our opposition? Who would argue in favor of cancer? Who would argue in favor of natural disaster? Who would argue in favor of theft? And and all the ugliness that repels us, uh, it could be that there are people like that. Um, I've met some bad people. I've never met people that bad. Um, I think that what Paul tells us in in the letter to the Ephesians is more likely. He says our struggle is not with enemies of flesh and blood, but with the spiritual forces of this present age. I think Jesus is saying those who will be slaughtered are those who are causing the trouble those who are appealing that there would not be a change in government. They like the way they've made the world into a mess and they want it to stay that way. And Jesus is saying there will be justice. At some point in the future, the people or the forces that have caused all the ugliness in the world will face justice. But that's not his point. It's true I mean, he wants, he wants you to understand that there is an assurance that, that the problems we face, there will be an accounting, there will be justice for them. But the focus of his story is the great middle part. The one servant who showed up with nothing to show for his time away. The one that the king says, I don't believe you. The great middle part of this parable is about not the people who say, sure enough, the king told me to do it, I'm going to go do it. And it's not about the people who say, I don't ever want Jesus to be my king. I like robbery and evil. It's about people who sit in the fence. People who are going to wait and see how it plays out. People who haven't decided which team they're on. That's who Jesus is talking about. The people who are just waiting waiting to see what happens. So Jesus tells them to get off the fence, to get off the sideline, and to get in the game. Jesus says, that's what matters. Even more than obedience. He doesn't, he doesn't even care. Both, both slaves who, do, who, who behave obediently, they, they don't get any particular praise for having been more, more effective than one another. The, the one who gets 10 pounds and the one who gets 5 That's not what the focus of the king is. The king is, are you on the team or not? Are you in the game or not? So Jesus says, have faith. The king will return. There will be an accounting. Uh, Justice will be done. But for those of you who are sitting on the sidelines, those of you who haven't decided where your allegiance lies, get in the game. And that's what he's telling us. That's what he's telling you. Have you made a decision? Are you in the game? What are you doing with your life? What are you doing with the talents that he gave you? What are you doing with the time that Jesus gave you during his absence? He's calling us to live in obedience. Now we're going to look at this the next couple of weeks. We're going to look at some specific ways that the church lives in obedience to Jesus' call. But let me just give you as a foretaste today this thought if you knew for a fact that jesus was running the world if you could actually drive to washington dc or paris or wherever his throne would be if you could drive there and you know go get a throne room tour okay if if you knew that jesus was in control of the world the way you know the irs is going to want tax money in april okay if you knew That Jesus was nuts and bolts reality running the world the way our government runs our country. How would you behave? How would you behave if you knew for a fact Jesus was already running the world? How would it affect your spending? How would it affect your time? How would it affect your relationships if you knew Jesus was running the world? It's an election year. How would it affect your vote? Think about these things. Think about what you would do if you knew for a fact Jesus was running the world. Now let me ask one more question. What can the church do to live in obedience? We're going to do two things today that show how we live in obedience. First, we're going to receive an offering. We do that every week, so it's easy to to think there's nothing special about it. Uh, once a month we receive an offering of food because Jesus told us to take care of the hungry. So we're going to do that. We stock our pantry with our offering. But we also live in obedience by supporting the work of the church beyond the pantry. Uh, we provide a space where people can come and hear these declarations. They can hear that God doesn't hate them. And they can hear that someday justice will be done. So we support the work of the church as an act of obedience. But we do something else. Jesus knew that it was going to be hard for us to wait. He knew that the worse your problems are, the harder it is to wait. So he said, what I want you to do every so often is remember that I'm still the king. Remember that I died and rose, and because of that, I am king over this world. So we're going to do that today in celebration with the entire church around the world. We're going to celebrate the communion of the church using the right that Jesus gave us, the right of communion. These are things we do in obedience to show the world that we believe there is a king. And we don't know what he's doing or why any more than people in Judea knew what Herod did when he was in Rome. I don't have a clue. I don't know why he can't be back later today. He's got his reasons. But I trust that he will come back. And that when he does, all will be put right. And so I've taken sides. And if you haven't taken sides, do today. Amen.